0: Israel has transgressed Article 2 of the Convention by committing actions that fall within the definition of genocide. The actions show a systematic pattern of conduct from which genocide can be inferred. The first genocidal act committed by Israel is the mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza.
1: That's Adila Hassam, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Adila Hassam, Richard Falk, and Irene Genzier on Gaza, a case of genocide. In the wake of the Holocaust in the 1940s, and earlier in the century, the genocidal attack against Armenians, the Polish jurist Raphael Lemkin coined the term genocide. In 1948, the UN adopted the Genocide Convention. On December 29, 2023, South Africa filed a case with the UN's International Court of Justice in The Hague, accusing Israel of the crime of genocide in its ongoing assault on Gaza. The convention defines genocide as, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. Israel has dismissed the charge, calling it meritless. In the first part of this program, Joseph Gerson, president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security, will be our moderator.
2: As we were shocked by and condemned the abominations of the brutal massacres of nearly 1,200 Israelis on October 7th, We and most of the world's nations stand horrified by what is widely understood as the IDF's genocidal assault against civilians in Gaza and by the escalating settler violence and land seizures in the West Bank. An estimated 23,000 Gazans, the vast majority of them children and women, have been killed in Gaza. That's roughly 20 times the number of Israelis killed in October. If we translate that proportionately into U.S. numbers, It's the equivalent of more than 3 million U.S. people. The U.N. humanitarian chief describes Gaza as uninhabitable. Yet the war goes on. Prime Minister Netanyahu pledges that the war will continue for nine months to a year. And powerful currents in his government, uh, the Netanyahu government, are pressing to thin to ethnically cleanse Gaza's 2 million people. Another Nakba. And as we see from the Hezbollah-Israeli exchanges along the border with Lebanon, bombings in Syria and Lebanon, targeted assassinations in Lebanon and Iraq, and the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, the danger remains that the war could explode into a regional cataclysm. President Biden's embrace of Prime Minister Netanyahu and massive U.S. weapons transfers to Israel have made what appears to be a genocide possible. It is also having broader and longer-term international ramifications. The U.S., as we see in U.N. votes, is increasingly isolated. These are very hard times. The need for a ceasefire and a credible process toward a just Israeli-Palestinian and Middle East peace are urgent necessities. My hope is that this evening's webinar will provide the historical background and current analyses that will add to pressure to end the killing and the apartheid and toward a peace that respects the dignity and rights of both Palestinians and Israelis. Okay, then I could spend the next hour introducing our evening speakers, but I'll briefly introduce them in the order that they'll be speaking. Irene Genzier is Professor Emerita at Boston University. She is currently an affiliate in research at the Harvard Center for Middle East Studies. Richard Falk is the Albert G. Milbank Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University and he served as the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Palestine. We will start with Irene. A lot of people have not been following developments in the Middle East uh, and and are are coming new to the crisis. So if you could kind of lay out, I hate to say it quickly, kind of a quick review of history, beginning with the the origins of the conflict.
3: Let me tell you that uh, one of the Astonishing, perhaps, and depressing aspects of reviewing this material, which, by the way, is accessible to anybody who has uh, a computer at hand. Just uh, for start, you might go to something called FRUS, Foreign Relations of the US, 1948, look up Israel Palestine. And uh, that will take you on a long, long journey. That's one of the many sources that I've used. Um, What is striking to me in reviewing this material is if you go back to the uh, period prior to the establishment of Israel, that is a mandate period uh, of the uh, post-World War I uh, that included Britain's power as a mandatory authority in Palestine. The problems that we have today existed at that time. In other words, uh, there was utter clarity about the fact that the Palestine mandate was riven, uh, divided by forces, Jewish forces on the one hand, Zionist forces seeking the establishment of a state, Palestinian forces resisting such an outcome. There were a series of reports that were issued by U.S. sources, including the CIA, in forty-seven and forty-eight throughout those years on the situation in Palestine. They are extremely revealing. This material is available online. Uh, They are revealing in a sense that they indicate the clarity with which the U.S. understood the the conflict, understood the differences, was very cautious and calculating in its decision to back uh, Israeli forces after May 48th. The calculation was based on an assessment of U.S. regional interests um, with, the, with the belief that uh, Israel's uh, superior military forces would probably have a long-term impact in the region. And it was useful for the U.S. not to confront in a negative sense these forces, but rather to co-op them, cooperate with them in supporting its own interests, meaning Arab oil. It looks from afar as a very odd combination, but in practice it wasn't. Insofar as Palestine was concerned, the sad truth is that U.S. officials, CIA, White House, they understood the conflict and at the same time decided that it was, if you want, a secondary matter that had the potential to disrupt broader U.S. interests. So if you look at U.S. reports, in the fall of 1947, October, November, through February 48, March 48, the Declaration of Israel's Independence, and uh, July, the sum- summer of 48, what I found uh, of interest, and as I say disturbing, uh, was the uh, U.S. position, which was first to uh, calculate what impact this might have on U.S.-Soviet rivalry in the region. Uh, once that became clear, then a more uh, narrow focus on um, the situation within Palestine and a very uh, a clear assessment that Palestinian forces or those Arab forces supporting Palestinian forces were militarily inferior to uh, what became Israel after May 48 and therefore was were not uh, worthy of the uh, u.s support uh, there were differences in the in uh, u.s government that is to say if you look at department of state cia department of defense there was by no means total unanimity but there was total clarity about what was going on about the forces involved and about the possible consequences Ultimately, the decision of what to be done was based on uh, the impact that Palestine would have on U.S. regional interests, meaning U.S. support for the oil-producing states. That perhaps is uh, the the general conclusion that this material leads to. Now, there was a very clear view also that moves to partition Palestine— were vehemently opposed in the Arab world, supported within Jewish circles in Palestine, but with uh, some uh, questions, and that uh, partition was nonetheless the probable and the most favorable outcome that the U.S. could expect from the situation in Palestine. So the CIA reports on the consequences of Palestine for November 47, February 48, yield a view of the Palestine problem not different from what we are looking at today. Irene,
2: thank you so much. Uh, Richard, to ask you about regional and international implications of the war, what, what are we seeing in terms of this reverberations? What does it mean in terms of, of where we're all headed in the coming years? Well,
4: one interesting way of responding would be to recall Samuel Huntington's 1993 article, The Clash of Civilizations, which ends with the uh, provocative phrase, the West against the rest. And one of the striking features of the way in which the uh, external alignments have developed is you find that the pro-Palestinian active forces are all on the Islamic side of the uh, civilizational border or fault line, whereas those that support Israel in an active way are in the European colonial states and the white settler colonial states of which the United States is the leading one. And the originality of this situation is quite extraordinary because it is the states supporting Israel that have tried to occupy the high moral and legal ground in international political life and have Uh, chastised and criticised others uh, for failing to be sensitive to the obligations of international law, uh, UN Charter, and so on. So you have this situation that has never existed before in relation to what increasingly seems a transparent example of severe genocide. You have the countries that supposedly were championing a world of democratic respect for human rights and law on the side of the genocidal actor. Not only withdrawing from any active uh, effort to prevent genocide, which is an a central obligation of the Genocide Convention, but actually being complicit in providing uh, material intelligence and diplomatic support throughout uh, this crisis period. And in, in other words, to me, the actual actuality of genocide is complemented by these complicity crimes. And they're not included in this very timely South African initiative before the International Court of Justice that is seeking provisional measures to stop the genocide on the basis of evidence that's overwhelmingly documented in an 84-page, very well-crafted application for this sort of relief. So it's a, a very malevolently unusual situation in international life, where you have international law demeaned by those states that have historically championed its relevance and now oppose what seems like a strikingly reasonable appeal to the International Court of Justice by saying that that initiative is legally baseless and Israel has said it's a blood libel against the Jewish people. So we have a situation growing out of the carnage in Gaza and the spillover in the West Bank, which is really engulfing the entire world in one sense in a new kind of uh, normative tension. The other thing I would like to say in response to your question is that Israel seems caught now between not being able to win nor being able to afford politically to lose. And their only option in that kind of uh, situation, if I'm correct in assessing it in this way, is to expand the war and draw Iran into an active A conflictual relationship that would in turn draw at least the U.S. into the conflict and maybe using the pretext that Iran is close to acquiring nuclear weapons as the basis for uh, launching an attack. It's a very precarious situation which has no logical, plausible way of ending at this point, and it's been horrifying up to this stage. And so it's hard to know what to do, even if the International Court of Justice does impose these provisional measures and order Israel to desist from further violence until the substantive decision is reached, it's unlikely that Israel will obey. Israel has consistently defied international law, and therefore there's a crisis of implementation. The law is there, but the political will to enforce it isn't present.
2: Let me then ask quickly. Uh... It's one thing to understand, understand the world. The other thing, of course, is to change it. What would each of you advocate as, as, or suggest to stop the killing and to prevent a wider war?
3: Well, I think the first thing I would ask is for the U.S. Uh, to make totally public the amount of economic and military aid it provides Israel and to consider halting military aid to Israel at the present time.
4: Richard, what do you say? As far as specific measures are concerned, I think in addition to making more transparent the degree to which the U.S. has supplied weaponry from U.S. taxpayer money would be an important supplement to the kind of rethinking of the relationship to Israel that is so important to take place. I would think that also proposing an arms embargo in the General Assembly and perhaps in the Security Council would have considerable uh, symbolic and possibly substantive value. And the third specific thing I think would be timely would be a People's Tribunal of Persons of Conscience dedicated to clarifying and documenting what has happened since October 7th and providing an opportunity for the peoples of the world to speak, including pointing to the failures of the intergovernmental system to take any kind of... effective, protective action. The best hope of the Palestinians is the mobilization of civil society at this stage. And the South African initiative is important because if this court gives a positive result to South Africa, it will escalate the popular participation through global solidarity, activism and pressure for boycotts in sports, culture, and other domains. That proved very successful in the struggle against South African apartheid. And Israel is becoming a pariah state that has made itself, through its behavior, through the outrageously open acknowledgement of genocidal intent, a pariah country or a rogue state. And this is a moment where civil society can produce a new balance of forces in the world. And if one looks at all the colonial wars, they were won by the weaker side militarily. And that's an important lesson for the 21st century, that it isn't weapons that control political outcomes. The U.S. should have learned that in Vietnam, where it won every battle, had total superiority in land, air, and sea, and yet lost the war. Part of the problem is it's unable to learn those kinds of lessons because of the strength of the military-industrial complex, the arms industry, the global geopolitical role being played by the U.S. all the military bases. So one's in a kind of dilemma where we know what we should be doing, but there's no way to get it done.
2: Um, So a question from George Smith. If, inshallah, the U.S. decided to use the full power of its leverage, to bring about an immediate, unconditional ceasefire in Gaza? Could it succeed?
3: The answer is that uh, the Israelis have not wanted a ceasefire, since the absence of such gives them an advantage that they can continue as they have been doing. Uh, Will the U.S. then... Uh, break its intimate uh, accord with Israel, informal and formal with Israel and say, no, we demand a ceasefire at the present time. I don't know. Maybe the answer in part has to do with the kind of external pressure that the U.S. is facing in the current situation. Maybe they will take that step. If they do, I think that it will be a significant break or significant shift or significant reassessment in U.S.-Israeli relations, which would be to the good, and uh, I, so I strongly uh, hope for, for that. I think that uh, insisting on holding back on a ceasefire is shameful from a humanitarian point of view and really exposes the kinds of interests that move the U.S. policy. question
2: here is concerned about the constant reference to Iran as supporting terrorism throughout the region. Richard, could you shed some light on the degree to which Iran is involved in supporting terrorism or not?
4: There is a huge propaganda effort to tie Iran to everything that has happened that has produced this crisis starting with October 7th Hamas attack. You notice even in the mainstream Print media like the New York Times, they always refer to Iran backed Houthis or Iran backed Hezbollah, a proxy of Iran. And this is trying to create a consciousness that Iran is our major enemy in the region. And at the same time, suppressing the idea that if Iran is backing countries, what the U.S. is doing is multiple times what Iran seems to have been doing. So I think Iran has certainly sympathies with the Palestinian struggle. Those sympathies extend to its political self-interest in not being attacked lots of problems within its own society, but it's dangerous state propaganda that is building up this notion that Iran is the real enemy standing behind this kind of anti-Israeli quote-unquote terrorism or criminality, as was evidenced by the October 7th attack. So I really think it's important to try to understand as accurately as possible the limited degree to which Iran is involved in the direct uh, shaping of the conflict. Just to add a a footnote, Uh, while I was special rapporteur uh, for the UN on Israeli violations of Human Rights and International Humanitarian Law, I had the opportunity to meet and talk in detail with several of the Hamas leaders who are living either in uh, uh, Doha or Cairo, and also in, in Gaza. At that point, in the period between 2010 and 2014, Hamas was publicly and by back channels pushing for a 50-year ceasefire with Israel, conditioned on uh, Israel carrying out the, mand- the unanimous Security Council mandate of '67 that Israel withdraw t- uh, to the pre-67 borders. And neither the U.S. nor uh, Israel would respond to those diplomatic initiatives. And Hamas, uh, Michelle particularly, who was perhaps the most uh, intellectual of the leaders, claimed that he warned Washington through reliable sources that if the ceasefire wasn't accepted or negotiated about, it would produce a period of tragic violence for both sides.
1: You're listening to Richard Falk on Gaza, a case of genocide. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us one 800 1977 Again, that's one 800 1977 Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Question here
2: from Mike Hager. Uh, Where can Palestinians go as the population suffers from famine and continued bombing? And I guess the question kind of related to this, I'd add here, is to what degree do you think Israel is pursuing the, the so-called commitment to thinning the Gazan population and to a functional second Nakba.
3: I mean, this is a criminal policy. I don't know that it has uh, it has to have a formal name, but this is not a policy that's designed to achieve anything but the uh, decapitation of the Palestinian population. If that's the objective, then one has to ask what, whether that objective will bring any kind of long-term security to Israel aside from what it means from a human point of view. I think the answer is negative. So I don't know what it means. Uh, the, the proposal that Israel made that uh, the population uh, simply moves south to where? The Egyptian Sinai, well, the Egyptians have already indicated that they don't welcome this. This is not a policy. This is some kind of a threat of um, elimination uh, that is uh, to be carried out.
4: Uh, If I could just add that uh, the Israeli campaign after October 7th was not directed toward Hamas's terrorism so much as it was directed toward the forced evacuation of the Palestinians from Gaza and the dispossession in the West Bank. If Israel really wanted to deal with its own security in an effective way, they're much more efficient methods that would not have exposed the entire civilian population of Gaza to this kind of massive terrorist genocidal attack. And so one has to question the motivations. at best, Israel used the October 7th attack as a pretext for a pre-existing plan to get rid of the Palestinians to the extent they could. And we should remember that before October 7th and since the Netanyahu coalition government took power, it was known as the most extreme government ever to be elected in Israel, it gave a green light to settler violence. And it was obviously intent on the end game of the whole Zionist project of claiming territorial sovereignty over the whole of so called Promised Land or Greater Israel.
2: Uh, there's a question here from Mohammed Kaku. What could be the potential long-term solutions to this conflict? The big question. What, what is possible uh, in the medium to long-term here?
3: Of course, peace was always a possibility. The absence of uh, war was always a possibility. The question is, Who, in whose interest is on the ongoing war? Who profits from it? I think that we really have to ask that kind of a question both with respect to U.S. support and in Israel itself, who benefits from the obvious continuation. Uh, Of course, you can say the arms industry, but there's also an industry that's built up of a public opinion that is carefully managed, manicured, so that the kinds of questions that are asked, that, for example, this speaker asked, are not asked. How many times in the U.S. press or in U.S general uh, discourse, whether it's on campuses and more often off, uh, are these kinds of questions raised uh, in an environment that is uh, not hostile? I think that is something that we have a responsibility for that we can affect.
4: Well, one has to establish a different context than the one that exists now, and that means a different outlook on the part of the Western supporters of Israel and a different internal Israeli sense of their own interests, their own future. And it's only when substantive pressure is brought to bear on an elite that has gone to these lengths that this current government in Israel Has gone to, it is only something very drastic that can shake it from this orientation that can't be measured in material interests alone. It, It is motivated in part by this kind of visionary Zionism of a maximal sort that sees the necessity of finishing the struggle in such a way as to eliminate the indigenous people as a obstacle to Jewish supremacy. And that's characteristic of settler colonial states. They all, including the US and Canada, they all have acted to neutralize or exterminate the indigenous people. And that's in my view what this is all about this is an effort to of maximal zionism to crush the relevance of palestinian people and we should remember that netanyahu was waving this map around including in the un general assembly that had no palestine on it and one of the motivations undoubtedly Uh, of Hamas was to negative the view that Palestine could be erased, and the old slogan of uh, a people without a land for a land without a people. That was in this early, pre-Balfour, Zionist utopian thinking, uh, which erased the Palestinians' As Irene said at the very beginning of our webinar, this is not new, what has happened. It's just an extreme, it's so extreme, it exposes the reality that Israel state propaganda and control of the public discourse has managed to distort and hide over the years. This is a moment of clarity that shouldn't be diverted by considerations that this is just a matter of bargaining for a mutually acceptable solution.
2: I want to close with this, with this uh, last question here. And What about Bernie Sanders' initiative in Congress to investigate human rights abuses by countries that receive US aid? I think he's very explicitly introduced the legislation in relationship to, to Israel. Is this a positive development?
3: Yes, I think so.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it will depend on how
4: seriously it's implemented. We look at these formal changes in law as if they're self-enforcing. And what we should have learned is that law is no better, is no incapable of being effective unless it's backed by effective political enforcement.
2: Um, I want to thank each of you for sharing your wisdom and underneath it, I know your passion as well.
1: Now we will hear from Adila Hassam, representing South Africa in its case at the International Court of Justice.
0: South Africa contends that Israel has transgressed Article 2 of the Convention by committing actions that fall within the definition of genocide. The actions show a systematic pattern of conduct from which genocide can be inferred. Allow me to place these acts in context. Gaza is one of the two constituent territories of the occupied Palestinian territories occupied by Israel since 1967. It is a narrow strip of approximately 365 square kilometers. Israel continues to exercise control over the space, territorial waters, land crossings, water... Electricity, electromagnetic sphere, and civilian infrastructure in Gaza, as well as over key governmental functions. Entry and exit by air and sea to Gaza is prohibited, with Israel operating the only two crossing points. Gaza which is one of the most densely populated places in the world, is home to approximately 2.3 million Palestinians, almost half of them children. Israel has subjected Gaza to what has been described as one of the heaviest conventional bombing campaigns in the history of modern warfare. Palestinians in Gaza are being killed by Israeli weaponry and bombs from air, land, and sea. They are also at immediate risk of death by starvation, dehydration, and disease as a result of the ongoing siege by Israel, the destruction of Palestinian towns, the insufficient aid being allowed through to the Palestinian population, and the impossibility of distributing this limited aid while bombs fall. This conduct renders essentials to life unobtainable. At this provisional measures stage, it is not necessary for the court to come to a final view on the question of whether Israel's conduct constitutes genocide. It is necessary to establish only whether at least some of the acts alleged are capable of falling within the provisions of the Convention. On analyzing the specific and ongoing genocidal acts complained of, it is clear that at least some, if not all of these acts, fall within the Convention's provisions. These acts are documented in detail in South Africa's um, application and confirmed by reliable often UN sources. It's thus unnecessary and impossible for me to recount all of them. I will highlight only some in order to illustrate the pattern of genocidal conduct. Against this background, I move now to demonstrate, in turn, how Israel's conduct violates articles 2A 2B, 2C of the Convention. The first genocidal act committed by Israel is the mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza in violation of Article 2A of the Genocide Convention. As the UN Secretary General explained, the level of Israel's killing is so extensive that nowhere is safe in Gaza. As I stand before you today, 23,210 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces during the sustained attacks over the last three months, at least 70% of whom are believed to be women and children. Some 7,000 Palestinians are still missing presumed dead under the rubble. Palestinians in Gaza are subjected to relentless bombing wherever they go, and as they try to find food and water for their families. They have been killed if they failed to evacuate, in the places to which they have fled, and even while they attempted to flee along Israeli-declared safe routes. The level of killing is so extensive that those whose bodies are found are buried in mass graves, often unidentified. Israel has killed an unparalleled and unprecedented number of civilians. More than 1,800 families, Palestinian families in Gaza have lost multiple family members and hundreds of multi-generational families have been wiped out with no remaining survivors. Mothers, fathers, children, siblings, grandparents, aunts, cousins, often all killed together. This killing is nothing short of destruction of Palestinian life. It is inflicted deliberately No one is spared, not even newborn babies. The scale of Palestinian child killings in Gaza is such that UN chiefs have described it as a graveyard for children. The devastation, we submit, is intended to and has laid waste to Gaza beyond any acceptable, legal, let alone humane justification. The second genocidal act, identified in South Africa's application, is Israel's infliction of serious bodily or mental harm to Palestinians in Gaza in violation of Article 2B of the Genocide Convention. Israel's attacks have left close to 60,000 Palestinians wounded and maimed. Again, the majority of them women and children. This in circumstances where the healthcare system has all but collapsed, large numbers of Palestinian civilians, including children, are arrested, blindfolded, forced to undress and loaded onto trucks taken to unknown locations. The suffering of the Palestinian people, physical and mental, is undeniable turning to the third genocidal act under Article 2C. Israel has deliberately imposed conditions on Gaza that cannot sustain life and are calculated to bring about its physical destruction. Israel achieves this in at least four ways. First, by displacement. Israel has forced forced the displacement of about 85% of Palestinians in Gaza. There is nowhere safe for them to flee to. Those who cannot leave or refuse to be displaced have either been killed or at extreme risk of being killed in their homes. Many Palestinians have been displaced multiple times as families are forced to move repeatedly in search of safety. Israel's first evacuation order on 13 October required the evacuation of over one million people, including children, the elderly, the wounded, and infirm. Entire hospitals were required to evacuate even newborn babies in intensive care. The order required them to evacuate the north to the south within 24 hours. The order itself was genocidal. It required immediate movement, taking only what could be carried, while no humanitarian assistance was permitted, and fuel, water, and food, and other necessities of life had deliberately been cut off. It was clearly calculated to bring about the destruction of the population. For many Palestinians, the forced evacuation from their homes is inevitably permanent. Israel has now damaged or destroyed an estimated 355,000 Palestinian homes, leaving at least half a million Palestinians with no home to return to. The Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced persons explains that houses and infrastructure I quote have been raised to the ground frustrating any realistic prospects for displaced Gazans to return home repeating a long history of mass forced displacement of Palestinians by Israel there is no indication at all that Israel accepts responsibility for rebuilding what it has destroyed. Instead, the destruction is celebrated by the Israeli army. Soldiers film themselves joyfully detonating entire apartment blocks and town squares, erecting the Israeli flag over the wreckage. Second, together with the forced displacement, Israel's conduct has been deliberately calculated to cause widespread hunger, dehydration, and starvation. Israel's campaign has pushed Gazans to the brink of famine. An unprecedented 93% of the population in Gaza is facing crisis levels of hunger. Of all the people in the world currently suffering catastrophic hunger, More than 80% are in Gaza. The situation is such that the experts are now predicting that more Palestinians in Gaza may die from starvation and disease than airstrikes. And yet Israel continues to impede the effective delivery of humanitarian assistance to Palestinians, not only refusing to allow sufficient aid in but removing the ability to distribute it through constant bombardment and obstruction. On 8 January, a planned mission by UN agencies to deliver urgent medical supplies and vital fuel to a hospital and medical supply center was denied by Israeli authorities. This marked the fifth denial of a mission to the center since 26 December, leaving five hospitals in northern Gaza without access to life-saving medical supplies and equipment. Israel has deliberately inflicted conditions in which Palestinians in Gaza are denied adequate shelter, clothes, or sanitation. Clean water is all but gone, leaving far below the amount required to safely drink, clean, and cook. Accordingly, the WHO has stated that Gaza is experiencing soaring rates of infectious disease outbreaks. Cases of diarrhea in children under five years of age have increased 2,000% since hostilities began. When combined and left untreated, malnutrition and disease create a deadly cycle. The fourth genocidal act under Article 2B is Israel's military assault on Gaza's healthcare system, which renders life unsustainable. Even by 7 December, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health noted that the healthcare of infrastructure in the Gaza Strip has been completely obliterated. Those wounded by Israel in Gaza are being deprived of life-saving medical care. Gaza's healthcare system, already crippled by years of blockade and prior attacks by Israel, is unable to cope with the sheer scale of the injuries. In sum, Madam President, all of these acts individually and collectively form a calculated pattern of conduct by Israel indicating a genocidal intent. This intent is evident from Israel's conduct in specially targeting Palestinians living in Gaza, using weaponry that causes large-scale homicidal destruction as well as targeted sniping of civilians, designating safe zones for Palestinians to seek refuge and then bombing these, depriving Palestinians in Gaza of basic needs, food, water, health care, fuel, sanitation and communications, destroying social infrastructure, homes, schools, mosques, churches, hospitals, and killing, seriously injuring, and leaving large numbers of children orphaned. Genocides are never declared in advance, but this court has the benefit of the past 13 weeks of evidence that shows incontrovertibly a pattern of conduct and related intention that justifies a plausible claim of genocidal acts. Every day, there is mounting irreparable loss of life, property, dignity, and humanity for the Palestinian people. Our news feeds show graphic images of suffering that has become unbearable to watch. Nothing will stop the suffering, except an order from this court Without an indication of provisional measures, the atrocities will continue, with the Israeli Defense Force indicating that it intends pursuing this course of action for at least a year. In the words of the UN Under Secretary General on 5 January 2024, I quote, constant bombardments, poor communications, damaged roads, Convoys shot at, delays at checkpoints, a traumatized and exhausted population crammed into a smaller and smaller sliver of land, shelters which have long exceeded their full capacity, aid workers themselves displaced, killed. This is an impossible situation for the people of Gaza and for those trying to help them. The fighting must stop, close quote. Madam President, members of the court, that concludes my section on the genocidal conduct of Israel. I thank you for your patient attention.
1: You were just listening to Adila Hassam on Gaza, a case of genocide. She represented South Africa at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, Netherlands, on January 11th. Before that, we heard from Richard Falk and Irene Genzier. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Max Blumenthal, Chris Hedges, Norman Finkelstein, and Phyllis Bennis. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Adila Hassam, Richard Falk, and Irene Genzier on Gaza, A Case of Genocide, and for the Edward Said book, Culture and Resistance, just give us a call at one 800 Triple four one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or you can go online our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us one 1977 Special thanks to Joseph Gerson. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Dana Sala singing "Talin" to those of you climbing the mountain. <laughs>
5: Ma bitti men kilelkom khal'a wala la 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 bitti zun nar ban la la yaman yaman hayn la hana ya rouh el aghaz